0: Hello, this is the Thinker What Works podcast, and today this is Alex Gary, and I'll be the lead speaker, uh, because Jason Todd is out of town. Uh, and we, we, we had Doug Campbell uh, step in as our number two guy. Yay so, for number two. But <laughs> <laughs> well, today we're talking with Dan Minnick, who owns a restaurant in downtown Rockford called Octane and uh, they're celebrating its 20th year in Rockford, and we wanted to have Dan in to talk a little bit about how he got the business going and how he's been able to keep it relevant over these years. So thank you for coming on the show with us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I remember Octane because I started working downtown about 20 years ago, and you guys had just opened. And if I remember right, you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh Downtown was not exactly a hopping place 20 years ago. So how did you guys settle on that location? Well, back
1: in the mid-80s, I was sitting across the street with my now lovely bride, Michelle, and we were dating at the time, and we were at Cafe Esperanto's, which is across the street, and upstairs it was a cafe at the time. And I looked across the way, and I told her, I said, I'm going to have a business in that space someday. And it was vacant and it looked much different then than it does now. And she's like, really? And I said, yeah. And I had my concept of what I wanted to do. And I was working in a salon at the time. And I knew that I wanted to do a hair salon and something else in the
0: space as well. So you weren't in the restaurant business until you got into there? No, not at all. That's a bit of a leap, isn't it? Very much so.
1: it's it's a very tough industry as a whole and michelle had some hospitality uh experience behind her working in the hyatt regency because we lived in hilton head south carolina for three years um, but prior to michelle another girlfriend of myself we went to seattle and when i was there uh, we visited some salons because it was uh there was some really great hair salons out there that we wanted to visit and by default we started to see espresso bars and the whole coffee culture out there and it was what I call the second wave of coffee and so it went from diner coffee to espresso and uh, how we know Starbucks today and we went to this one establishment and it was this beautiful darkly lit bar and we walked in and we realized that it was based around espresso, port, and wines. And it was this beautiful place. And that's when the thought of merging a salon and a cafe-style business together was something that I wanted to
0: do. Now, the original um, name of it was the Octane Interlounge. So Mm -hmm. 20 years ago was the beginning of the whole Internet era. So what was the the original business model or what was behind Octane Interlounge?
1: Well, how that all came about was in uh, early 90s, Uh, My wife was doing her graduate work down at U of I, and there was, in the internet and tech industry, uh, there's a gentleman quite known uh, well as uh, Mark Andreessen, and he was there, and she was getting her master's degree in information library science. And we had another friend, uh, Hans Rupert, who, professional photographer and a real downtown supporter, he was also into tech. And he had just recently brought in a T1 line into Rockford. And at that time in the early 90s, that was quite fast speed. And so it all kind of started from there. And we were looking at a business model that would work with the hair salon. And I knew that I wanted to open a salon because I'd been planning this for 10 years and also a cafe so that's how the whole business model of that came together was we wanted to provide uh... internet service we knew that was uh... we would probably be a little ahead of the the curve Mm -hmm. in rockford and uh, so we had to get it all privately funded because banking institutions, first of all, we had no experience in restaurant industry. They had no idea what really was gonna happen in an internet or cyber cafe. And um, also we were choosing the downtown area and downtown at that time was, as you were asking, mm-hmm. not a lot going on. So we, we were able to push through that, got private financing and uh, at the time, we financed all the high-tech gear that we could. And did,
2: did you get the idea of the internet cafe, not just a cafe, but internet cafe, idea when you were traveling out west too? Were there some out there, or what brought that to mind?
1: How that happened was, first of all, it was just going to be a cafe, and then the internet cafe came about when um, Hans and a couple of other friends and myself, we took a trip out to San Francisco to Macworld. And uh, at that time, we were taking a look at what was going on out there. And there was a cyber cafe out there at the time. And it was kind of interesting because they were all coin-op. Coin-op. Um, oh, computers.
0: Like, like, well, like when movies started, right? They were the little, you know, mm-hmm. nickel, nickel, Nickelodeons, right? Right. Wow. Exa- uh-huh. Exactly.
1: Or like how the jukeboxes at the table were at one point in time and right. you drop a quarter and then it would play. So these were coin-op computers. Okay that you could get online, and um, some of these places weren't even running fast speed. They were running DSL because that's what was available in their area. So we got the concept and the idea to merge that with uh, the uh, the cafe idea. Mm-hmm. So that's how that that came about, and then began all the research of what kind of equipment to get and what we were going to use, and he had had the T1 line in his space, which is now the Prey Street Brewer House, Mm -hmm. Um, and he had a studio that he was renting out over there, and uh, he was doing some web design and different things, but anyway, uh, we got a radio tower that we connected to our building that connected to his building, and that's how we sent the T1 line frequency over to our building because we couldn't afford to do a T1 line on our own. So we were able to do it through radio frequency. And considering how, you know, at times when we had high wind, the internet would go out and we had a tech guy, he was 16 years old, but bright, his name's Corey Frang, and he would climb the building and go up the tower and readjust the antenna.
0: And what was the insurance on that guy?
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Lots of coffee we gave him.
2: <laughs> now, I remember from in a past conversation you and I had here, actually, at Thinker, um, your computers, for, for the geeks out there, <clears throat> they were Next they were. computers, right? They weren't Apple computers. They were, they were by another company by Mr. Jobs called Next.
1: Mm-hmm. He went on to leave Apple at that time. And actually kicked out. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he created Next. And Next was really created for institutions for engineering. They were a higher-level computer. And uh, the, uh, I believe, don't quote me on this, but entry-level price was around thirty grand <laughs> to buy one of those computers at the mm-hmm. time. So we found a lot of them. And over doing research, and we had a couple different connections. One guy was in Texas, and we found Next Machines, and they're called pizza boxes and cantilevered monitors, and we had black and white 17-inch monitors, 15-inch monitors, but the kicker was the 21-inch color monitor. And at that time, in the mid-'90s, not many people – in a public business like that would walk in and see mm-hmm. a handful of 21 inch color monitors mm-hmm. that at that time had blazing speed.
0: Right. What, what was, what was the reaction of customers the first time they came in? Cause this had to be just totally foreign to them.
1: From excited to overwhelmed to, I want to be a part of this. How do I get on these computers? And in the beginning we were charging an hourly rate, kept track of it and, uh, people had you know tabs and we had accounts going and that kind of thing um we did as much advertising as we could afford at the time but you know there wasn't really social media at the time so it was you know a little bit of the internet and um a lot of of word of mouth kind of thing and being able to get the newspaper Mm -hmm. to do things on us as well and uh i have to say that the uh uh, Rockford Newspaper was very, very kind to us and did a lot of, of free promotional advertising for us. And we did advertise in the newspaper as well. But they were really kind because they were embracing some of the new things that were happening, especially in the downtown area. And they were rooted downtown. And it was something new. So we were a great fodder for news and fun things at that time. And then later, Rock River Times also picked up on it as well and because of what the rockford register star did rock river times is like well we're not going to be out none so they mm-hmm. promoted this as well so that's how we got the word out mm-hmm.
0: more that well, way let's, let's take a step back because one thing mm-hmm. we haven't talked about is the food i remember a few um, when i used to work at the rockford register star there was mm-hmm. a guy who started a restaurant out on riverside in perryville called the varsity diner Great concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was going to be kind of like the high school sports hall of fame. Had all these pictures. Had all he, he paid for all these great plates with names on them. And for six months, there was a waiting list to get in there. But he didn't know how to run a restaurant. So after six months, nobody went back. The food was bad. The service was bad. So you went into the restaurant business. You had this great concept. But you still mm-hmm. got to make good food. So how did you do that? Uh, put my pride aside. Michelle and I did, and we
1: looked to find the best people, and we gave a lot of feedback, but we also gave a lot of freedom to our opening chef, who was Eric Olson, and he had a great background. He was a roommate of mine prior to all of this. He was there when I came up with the concept in the mid-'80s. and we were living together at the time. So I trusted him and I knew his creativity. And I also knew his ability of cooking. He wasn't formally trained, but he had a great feel for it. And so we went from what would have been a coffee house cafe with sandwiches to desserts to a restaurant. And it was a tapas restaurant. And that was tough marketing because in 97 people in a, as a whole weren't familiar with a tapas-style restaurant, small plates, they didn't understand that concept. They wanted to know where the rest of their food was and why we, they were just getting appetizers, even though we explained to them. And unique thing about our menu was at that time is it was in Spanish and English. Mm-hmm. We took the time to do it both ways. And it was uh, our dishes were very authentic. The tapas thing was short-lived as far as just that type and style of menu. So we realized that we had to add some entrees. So we stayed flexible in what we were doing. Um, and with the flexibility, we moved forward to that, and then we added lunch. And so we knew if we were adding lunch or that we were going to have to move into more of lunchtime food, still with a creativity and a twist. And so what we brought to the table there was some of our favorite dishes that Michelle and I experienced in Hilton Head when we lived there. And uh, we did we explored a lot, read magazines and things about mm. ideas of what we wanted to see in the way of food. How many head chefs have you had over the years? Let's see. um, Eric Olson and then we had um, Jason Williams came on and he was there for 13 years. And he pretty much ran the kitchen until about uh, five years ago when Patrick came on. Um, And Patrick's been with us since. Uh, With Jason, we had a few uh, assistant chefs under him as well. With some great creative ideas that also were allowed to add uh, spice and flavor to the menu. Because one thing that we really embraced early on was a features board. So we would feature two to three items uh, for the for the the uh, uh, day uh, and. So we'd have our regular menu, and then we would have the featured items. And the feature items really gave them more of a creative outlet to do some different things that maybe they were thinking of. And that's where we gave them the opportunity to be able to do that. And that really helped build um, the creativity within our kitchen. And people that would come to the restaurant a lot of times were just eating off of the features menu because they enjoyed that
2: was it mainly a business lunch crowd back then because you know as we've talked about rockford wasn't the downtown area wasn't booming like it like it is now so was it more of a lunch uh, crowd than casual
1: uh, we had a good business crowd uh during the day for lunch lawyers and such and employees down here rockford newspaper um city hall because there weren't a lot of choices at the time uh, the other side of that is the evening business we had nat new american theater so new american theater fed us a lot and coronado was still going at the time uh we still had the symphony we still had things like that going and we were really busy and when nat closed we felt that tremendously that because we got a lot of different types of business from that. We got, That's when about, they were- That was
0: about 11 years ago. Mm-hmm. My, my daughter took a, a summer class at NAT, and then it closed that fall. Mm-hmm. So I, I remember when that happened.
1: And you know, when they would, the people would come in to start rehearsing for the play, they came next door. We were so convenient for them. So they would eat. They would have cocktails. They would, you know, afterwards, they would kind of relax. They would come in beforehand. Um, and then we had the regular theater goers over there because that was a dedicated group of people that went to NAT. Mm-hmm. They supported that. And, um, you know, even with the shift from chair Sullivan to the other directors of the theater, it still stayed pretty well. And then it reached the point where it, it, they just couldn't carry it any longer because of the, the issues that they had over there.
0: So you had probably about a, a three or four year stretch there where, because the Metro Center, I think, had kind of tapered off. Mm-hmm. Coronado was going through their changes. Mm-hmm. Um, that did it get tough at one point? It did. And it said, you know, maybe this isn't for us anymore. Or... It was lean. Okay.
1: We had those conversations more than once about what do we do? This is, this is a challenge. And we persevered through it. Uh, we got creative. We tightened up our belts, you know, if you will. And we started to see also a increase in our lunch business. We started to do a little more promotion. Social media was starting to take hold a little bit. We were able to use the internet a little bit more in that respect. Uh we did email blasts. We did different things like that to help build business back again, but it was lean for a little while
2: there. What mm-hmm. goes through your head when when it's lean like that? You've been on your own. You've it's it's not only your business and livelihood, but it really becomes your baby and a, kind of an extension mm-hmm. of the family, especially in your case, because Michelle, your wife, is obviously involved in it as Absolutely. well as you. So is it is it fear that keeps you going because you don't know what else you would do in life or or what makes you persevere and and get through that hump?
1: I believe it's some of that because when you – when I would think about ending that business, there's that void. There's that open space, black hole, however you want to look mm-hmm. at it. And if you're not prepared to fill that, it will fill itself. And if it fills itself, sometimes it's not exactly what you want. And so I would say fear to a certain degree. Uh, also, what's the public going to think? You know, Neither of us like failure. Mm-hmm. and granted now after all these years we know that it wouldn't be failure um, it's a lesson I don't really believe in failure I believe that it's a lesson and you move forward and learn from it um, because I mean if you're you know even if something happened today after 20 years and we were to close that wouldn't be a failure <laughs> at mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. it wouldn't be and even 10 years into it I wouldn't call it a failure right. um, in the business world you know the first year, if you don't make it, they call that failure. It was an experience for those people who did it. They did learn something right. and they move forward. Um, the percentages are really high of the, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the amount of businesses that closed in the first year, the amount of businesses that closed in the second year, and even the f- first five years.
2: So how have mm-hmm. you juggled the salon and the, I mean, obviously they're in the same building, but the Mm -hmm. octane the restaurant and fuzz the salon um how do you juggle that because used to michelle was involved Mm -hmm. is she still maybe she's still she is involved
1: okay uh she's involved at it from more from at home now um doing things and recently we've had kind of a shift in her career as well so i've taken on a little bit more responsibility for it we always led from the rear Um, we've always believed in that philosophy instead of being out front. We never felt we needed to be out front. Um, we kind of treated our restaurant as more of a turnkey operation kind of business. And given that, then we built it in such a way where we knew and didn't want to have to be there all the time. And we trusted our employees and, you know, by finding the right people, it helped to bring in that psychological ownership. And you
0: know, that's interesting to talk about that because uh, we had uh, Dax Lefkosky and and Jerry Cortman in a couple of weeks ago to talk. And theirs is totally different. Their business, everybody knows their business, but they know that they're the face of the business. So whereas you know, for twenty years, I've known Octane, but you and I have never met. I mean, I you know it's so that that's an interesting way to run a business. Um, I wouldn't have known until Doug and I talked that it's been the same owner for twenty years because it's I've known it as Octane, not as Dan Minnick's Octane. So, just a different it's, way to do business.
1: And I never needed that notoriety of that type. Um, it, it wasn't necessary, um, and then sometimes it's really fun to be able to sit in the restaurant and. People not knowing that I'm the owner always, and the ones that do come up, they chat. But the people that don't know me still don't have any idea that I might own that business, and um, it's it's in, you in a fun some kind of way. You don't it hear served me well in some ways, <laughs> but you know what? Yeah, yeah. I it, that that doesn't bother me any longer. There was yeah. a point in time that would have, but it's it's fine. What yeah. I don't always I I listen to what people say. Right but I don't always get emotional about what people right. say. Um, and so that's, that's interesting that you bring that up because at times I think about that and it's like, should I have been more of a stronger face? And it's like, well, we we're here for 20 years. We've done really well. And, I think in part what that has also done going back to the psychological ownership is that it's given other people that are employed by us the opportunity to have a stronger leadership position in the business. And our current chef, Patrick, there are a lot of people that think that he owns the restaurant and that's perfectly fine. I, it does not really matter. And in some ways he is our, our third partner in this because he's leading a lot of the way As far as like menu goes, we work together on that. uh, And he's got, I believe he has really great leadership skills in helping lead employees as well. And then we have Sean, who's the manager of the front of the house. Patrick's our executive chef and general manager.
0: Well, what you're talking about is there's a, a great book by Jim Collins called Built to Last. He also did good to great, but then Built to Last talks about businesses that depend so much on um, the leader that when the leader dies or sells, the business doesn't survive and so he looks at companies that are built to last. I think there was a you know there was a, a restaurant or the guy who owned Cliff Breakers, and I don't want to say names on on the podcast, but all of his businesses were very tied to him and so whenever he'd sell or walk away, those businesses wouldn't last very much longer. So mm-hmm. you've built something that you could sell tomorrow and it would it would sail on, um, As is. Mm-hmm. As it, it was designed, it could
1: very easily. And um, you mentioned uh, business books and leaders and such. And Simon Senek is another uh, person that I really like who was a marketing guy, but now he, he goes around and talks to different businesses and so on. And he talks about the difference of a business being infinite versus finite. And uh, it's very interesting. And I had the chat with our chef, because he was, he got a little emotional about um, another business in the community. And, So we had a chat and I said, you need to watch this video. And he was familiar with Simon Sinek. And so he watched the video and he completely understood what I was saying about the difference between infinite and finite. And what it is is how you look at your business. If you're always concerned about what other people are doing, you're having less time focused on your business. And if you stay in your business and focus on continuing what you really do best, you're going to thrive in your community and you don't really have to pay attention to what other people are doing. You're aware, but awareness is different than being emotionally involved in what other people are doing. Mm -hmm. And um, that completely shifted what his perspective was Mm -hmm. of that. And, you know, there's an old book that we've followed ever since we opened the hair salon, and it was the E-Myth, and entrepreneurial myth. And it's such a great book about the myth that people have when they get into business. About how well it's going to go, and that's he talks about how you the, the building a turnkey operation is really a strong suit and really important, and that's the guidance that we used for both of our businesses to do that because every minute that you're either behind the chair in the, the salon is a minute that you're not working that you're working in your business and not working on your business, so in the restaurant we really learned that and we allow the other people to lead the way so we can work on our business instead of in the business and there's a difference and i believe those are some of the things that have really helped us along the way and that we've stuck to it and we refer to our our business plan for uh, octane we make references to it we revise it it's it's really an important tool and um we look back and say, you know what, we have done this, and we've done this, and this is where we are. And we could be stronger in this area here. We could have a little better growth. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, we started out as a, a coffee-focused place, and with other coffee places open, opening, and figuring it out, and them coming into the downtown area, we realized that we started to. Um, lose some of the market share because we were sharing the same amount of people. And so people wanted variety and diversity. So we had to figure out with our business where we were going to go with that. And I think we've adjusted well, you know, we're still open early, but it's from a different point of view. now. We have our regulars that like to come in, but we're not the espresso based coffee business that we were.
0: One of the things you just talked about reminds me of a conversation I had when Valley Produce came to town. They were in the suburbs, and they came into the Old Cup Foods, and, and we called them up, and we had the you know, the questions of, okay, there's this big grocer in town, and there's this big grocer in town, and there's this big grocer in town. Are you worried that it's too crowded of a market? And the guy said, we're just going to come in and do our thing and let the chips fall where they may, which I thought was a, a great you know, way to, to look at it. If they, if you do well at your own business, you'll be fine. Um, one of the things that you, you talked about, also about adjusting, is over the years you have adjusted the menu several times. Um, there's two ways of going with that, right? The, we had a restaurant for years called Maria's, and it had, you know, people would go there once a year to eat the same thing. It had the same menu for 50 years, and mm-hmm. it, you know, eventually it didn't make it and i would call in and order my shrimp dijon
1: because mm-hmm. that was a special order so you know I, I get exactly what you're saying and they are one of the restaurants that pop into my mind as being the other side of where we are and i think what i'm don't mean to interrupt i don't know if you no, finish on your thought um i felt this day and age we had to be progressive in how we did things and we're in a a, a time period and i think Probably the last ten years, people want new varieties. They want new things. I've I've seen this. You can see it. It changes very quickly now by comparison. And I think part of that is due to the you know first it was the internet now it's social media it's all of these things and things move more quickly now mm-hmm. and um, you have to be ready
2: for that. Well, one of the ways you changed your business. Um, or adapted was bringing your your love of music and DJing into the restaurant because on many weekends you DJed and Mm -hmm. provided your own entertainment in the restaurant, right? So that that created its own kind of following and uh, probably opened up new customers to you.
1: It did. And, you know, then we pulled back from that and – I've had people ask me to start doing it again mm-hmm. and, you know, come in and, and maybe once a month do it. And there's a couple other interested parties that we would do it together and, you know, maybe theme it a little bit more. Do a vinyl night versus just digital music night and mm-hmm. bring in the vinyl into it. And, you know, that's popping up a little more around the community. Uh, so there's there's we're looking at things like that again mm-hmm. as well. You know, unfortunately, Octane wasn't created as an entertainment venue. Uh, we really wanted it to be, but we realized that um, we were running out of space. <laughs> it's a very long, lean building. <laughs> it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had already taken some of the real estate from the salon and, and and cut it off in our original plan because we knew that we wanted more for the restaurant
2: well, you'd said once your kitchen really isn't as large as you would like it to be, and that's maybe the smallest area of the entire business, right? You and mean, it's
1: amazing what we turn out of that kitchen on a mm-hmm. on a busy night mm-hmm. um, when we turn the tables over twice, sometimes three times, depending on the events and what's going on downtown, and what they can do out of there. And you know, because it's a small kitchen, so much of the food is made fresh. It's made fresh right, right there. You know. It's all about prep and, um,
2: yeah. What percentage of your menu would you say because of that, and having to turn the turn the tables quickly and and move the food through the through the kitchen mm-hmm. quickly? How much more of your menu is uh, fresh, you know, healthy, more healthy fare than it was maybe five or ten years ago? Is that a new trend? For you or is that something you've just always done
1: michelle and i always liked it uh, we got I, I will say this octane got complacent for a little while we got comfortable um, we got comfortable with our chef at the time and so we didn't do a lot to change the menu so we did have healthy items that were made fresh but what i found was a lot of those were the featured items and some of the other things on the, the regular menu maybe not as fresh as we would have liked. Um, So when Pat came on board, we really moved in that direction. Michelle and I have always liked, for lots of years, uh, farm-raised things uh, organically, healthy type foods. We just knew when we were enjoying that, that on a restaurant level, the margins weren't there to be able to do it. it. And given what we'd have to charge for it and being in Rockford, it was it was a tough one mm-hmm. because it was hard enough in larger cities at that time for them to get it off the ground where it was more uh, locally sourced, farm-raised, organic. So we we kind of had to wait patiently to be able to do some of that. But we we were we were um, influenced by CHIP program, comprehensive health improvement program, or coronary health improvement program. Yeah, it was
0: coronary. That was a Swedes thing, right? Swedish American. Mm-hmm. It
1: was, and we went through the program. There were items on our menu at that time that appeared on there that were healthier uh, for for everyone, basically, and vegetarian items. And that was probably one of the kickers that really had us move in that direction. But we always did have a nice selection of vegetarian items on the menu by default. You know, we had hummus. We had uh, a couple of the um, the humongous fungus sandwich, and we had just different things on there that
0: were— I ate the Ricky Ricardo forever. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes.
1: Yes, we still have that.
0: <laughs> you know, the, the thing you're talking about is um, that's what the millennials are into. I mean, the millennials are changing the restaurant industry, from all my research, very quickly. In a way, the, stu- the, the market's kind of caught up with you, in a way. Is, is that how you're okay. going to feel? Yes, we do. And because of them,
1: the millennials, I shouldn't call them them, the millennials, they've...
0: There's no millennials in this room, so.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. By far. They, um, they've pushed the envelope, and... You know, they've, short of demanding, they've demanded these things. And so given that, it's, it's, it's been good for us because we like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's allowed us to still do that and not compromise who we were. Because when we created our menus early on, we loved um, vintage TV sitcoms and such and so we you know we have a sandwich that's still on the menu from the very beginning of when we started lunch father knows best Mm -hmm. you know and we've got the Ricky Ricardo and we've got different you know uh, things on the menu that were named for vintage tv and um, so we kind of infused and fused that together with healthy food and not so healthy food and that's been really fun. And then I have a love of jazz. So we had the Blue Note Burger was one of my, it's still one of my favorite burgers. Um, and <clears throat> so we've been able to do some different things that way as well. And
0: uh, Well, I've got just a couple more questions. And A big one would be, so you've been doing this for 20 years. What have you learned in these 20 years that you wish you knew when you started? That's a very good question.
1: What have I learned now that I wish I would have known in the beginning? I've I've learned better communication with uh, people. I've learned leadership skills about um, how to lead people. Because in the beginning, we were all new to this. So it was just, we were all kind of grouping together. And by doing that, um, and being humble really is is a key too um that goes a lot further than people think it can and um i think flexibility again is really important because you have to be i i believe i have to be flexible we have to be flexible in this business in order to move with the times because the times do change and if you don't stay flexible with your business especially how quickly things move now um it, you you can be left behind in some respects
2: speaking about trends and things changing quickly who's your who is your average customer at the restaurant at octane you know age group because it seems to me whenever i'm in there it's all over the board it, it isn't like all you know uh millennials or it's it's not all baby boomers it seems like you have a good mix of we all do age and and male and female i mean both you know
1: we do and our our um in the beginning we set out and we are uh kind of our mantra for the business was we wanted to add, um, add new meaning to people's lives and by providing a place for that. And from the very beginning, we've always had a very diverse group of people from ages to uh, every walks of life. Mm -hmm. And we've been able to maintain that. Um, If you ask the public now, in some respects, in social media, you would hear that we're one of the hipster places now i don't see that personally because i still see the diversity that you're talking about and granted i'm not in my business every night either or late so i don't see that but i believe that we have still been able to maintain diversity um in some cases we're seeing three generations of families coming into our restaurant now which is so cool Mm -hmm. you know um, parents came in and they brought their high school kids in when we first opened now, those high school kids have kids that they're bringing in that are, you know, single digits to their teens. And that is so cool that they're sharing that same blue do that the kid had, you know, 20 years ago. And um, that's that's really a, a, a fun thing to see. So when we started the business, that was the one thing. I was going to be a tongue-in-cheek to go back to your question about what we've learned, that I probably wouldn't open another restaurant, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I say that with you know some humor, because it's a very difficult business and um, it can be thankless at times. And but it, all of those things that I mentioned prior are what I have learned from this
0: industry and willing to be open to it. So I think on that note, I think we should wrap it up. Thank you very much, Dan Minnick, for coming in and talking to us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. This has been a great time.